Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the new discussion series in How Hebel on Ufa, Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence. Too little, too late. The current ecological catastrophes are just as real as they are no longer stoppable. How do we deal with being too late to reverse them? What would it mean to think from the end and deal with the catastrophe responsibly? And what exactly is ending? The world? Humankind? The biodiversity of species? Or the belief in the Western way of life? Our discussion series looks at the escalating and indeed apocalyptic discourses of the coming end against the background of a growing ecological crisis and asked about the opportunities for action. It is initiated and conceived by House Curator for Discourse, Margarita Tsomu, and curated in cooperation with the theorist and dramaturg Maximilian Haas. With the series, we aim to take an intersectional perspective on ecological questions. The first event took place in Haowon on the evening of the 4th of November and had the title Facing Extinction. In a full theater, the two curators introduced the evening before we listened to the contribution of the guests, which were Franco Berardi Biffo, philosopher, critic of capitalism and theorist of the Italian post-operismo, Marcella Vecchione, professor at the Institute for Advanced Amazonian Studies, which is situated in the middle of the Amazon forest in Brazil, and Antonia Mayazza, feminist theorist working at the IZK, Institute for Contemporary Art, Graz University of Technology. And now, you listen to the live recording of this first edition of Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence. Hello, hello everybody, good evening. I'm very happy to welcome you in the name of Hau Hebelam Ufa to our new discursive series Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence. I am Margarita Tsomu. I am the theory and discourse curator of the HAO. And um, while we were discussing in our team about this series, it became clear to us that we have to rethink everything. We cannot think about the political anymore without taking into consideration its planetary dimensions. Um, everything, I think, has to be thought through its intersections with an environmental crisis that affects the political and the social as much as it is affected by the political and the social. And I was already discussing with my long-year friend and collaborator, Maximilian Haas. We are starting this as a collaboration and he will co-curate the series with me. And uh, since we're starting it today, we want to say a few things. But we decided also to not repeat yesterday's news here. Because you know, you know about melting polar ice and the rising seas. You know about species extinction and its acceleration. You know about the poisoning and the depletion of soil, air and water. You know about plastic waste forming islands in the ocean and suffocating fish. You know about the coral bleaching around them. You know about the mutual dependency of these threats and the vicious feedbacks leading to barely predictable tipping points. You know that people are already suffering and dying due to this and you know that those least responsible are suffering the most. You know the figures, you know the graphs, you know the images of the ecocide from social media and news broadcasts, and we all now feel them too, in our own social, economically privileged central latitudes. All this knowledge, however, does not necessarily lead to action, nor even to understanding. 
The speed and size of the eco-catastrophes we are facing are as unprecedented as they are incomprehensible. The slow violence of environmental changes has accelerated into a staccato of events. Climate scientists have been downplaying their data for decades, communicating only the softest prognosis so as not to appear alarmist. After all, public opinion is a shy child. This strategy has failed. Everything that can be said about the climate crisis is by definition anachronistic and obsolete, and everything that can be done about it is necessarily too little and too late, claim Brazilian theorists Deborah Danowski and Eduardo Viveros de Castro in their book The Ends of the World. We will never return to the nature of our childhood, and none of us is innocent. And in this context, it became clear to us that in this series of discussions, we need to address this very fact, that the efforts of humanity might be too little, too late. Because if this is the case, the questions we are confronted with and the actions needed shift. How do we deal with it being too late to reverse these disastrous developments? What would it mean to think back from the end and deal with the coming catastrophe responsibly? And what is actually ending the world, humankind, biodiversity, the Western way of life? Discourses of the end are informed by the biblical visions of the apocalypse as the ultimate event of a universal downfall. Humans have always been fascinated by their collective death and the world without them. In modernity, this world is conceived of as a product of human experience, and therefore the extinction of man also entails the elimination of this world in general. The ecological point of view, however, sees the human as one species among many whose ecologies of existence are mutually dependent. Therefore, we are asking... Whose end are we actually talking about? And how do we talk about this end without falling into anthropocentric narcissism about our own extinction only? How do we critically reflect the apocalyptic imaginaries without denying the urgency of the situation we are facing? And what would be the appropriate language to describe environmental changes without falling back and sounding the horn of those who long for the return for a paradise lost or an apparent order of the past. Utopian and dystopian visions alike fail to account for the empirical futures to come. As Bruno Latour argues, Donald Trump was the first US president to put the ecological crisis at the center of his political agenda precisely by denying it. Yet, even right-wing populists have to adapt to the recent developments. As you might know, while the German IFD used to simply negate climate change, after the heat waves of the summer, they shifted the strategy, saying, yes, weather is changing, but there's nothing we can do about it. So the very fact that it is too late now to fully reverse the changes to our environments might also feed right-wing agendas, which instrumentalize resignation for business as usual. Therefore, we need to take another take on this urgency. It is our responsibility to avoid worst-case scenarios and to deal with the unavoidable in an ecologically and socially cautious way. So... How do we create solidarity? How do we build care structures and offer protection for those in immediate need? How do we slow down and invent strategies of production and reproduction beyond the paradigm of exploitative and industrial growth? And are there ways to soften the peaks of future challenges? These questions have been promoted by climate activists since decades and recently reached another level of recognition in the West through the efforts of Fridays for Future and groups like the Extinction Rebellion and Ende Gelände in Germany. But they have predecessors who still put their very life at risk to preserve the living conditions of humans and non-humans on this planet, the many indigenous eco-activists around the world who are fighting not only for the right to their land, 
but also for an ecologically and socially sustainable and just way to cultivate this land. The success of the recent movements in the West, however, is partly due to the fact that they relentlessly repeat the simple truth of climate change and ecocide and demand precise political action. This is especially remarkable as the hyper-objects to which they thus refer are of utmost complexity. We're confronted with a problem that contains every earthly being, including ourselves, as an element. The eco-critical theories of new materialism, post-humanism and the like try to stay true to this complexity, bridging natural sciences, cultural studies, political discourse and or indigenous cosmologies. The extremes of simple truth on the one hand and complex theories on the other also defines the spectrum in which we aim to address these issues here, navigating between concrete environmental struggles and speculative thought. And while we still discuss these issues in a relatively solid and sound environment, in the global south, the ecologies of human existence are already being destroyed through rising sea levels, hurricanes, floods, fires. Yet, it is first and foremost the way of life and production of the industrialized west, of the global north, based on the destructive exploitation of resources, human and others, which has led to this situation, from which it is still quite well shielded today. The ecological crises are therefore closely linked to the colonial establishment of economic inequality and cannot be discussed without critique of contemporary capitalism. Ultimately, for indigenous peoples around the globe, the catastrophe began 500 years ago with the arrival of the European colonizers. Feminist intervention, on the other hand, call attention to the fact that care work for people and environments, which is still largely performed by women, is dramatically undervalued still in our worlds, although it is indispensable for future post-growth practices. Therefore, it is also clear to us that the social conflicts due to racism, colonialism, patriarchy and class society cannot be separated from environmental destruction. The violence they entail will only get worse with them. For this reason, this discussion series does not aim at an expert debate about nature, environment or ecology, but should instead take an intersectional perspective on ecological questions and make economic and cultural interconnections explicit. In approaching something as challenging as planetary responsibility, the question of technology plays an important yet ambivalent role. The false opposition between nature and technology seems utterly misplaced today. Every intervention in nature, starting with agriculture at the latest, co-shapes what it means, does, and is. However, recent technologies such as genetic and geoengineering have taken this intimacy between nature and technological culture to another level. They feed techno-solutionist desires for simple fixes to problems that actually concern our self-understanding as humans co-inhabiting the world. While technology is indeed crucial in dealing with climate change and environmental devastation, it will not be the solution. Biotechnical projects such as de-extinction, that is the resurrection of extinct species from their remnants, speak of a masculinist hubris of human as both the destroyer and the savior. De-extinction, this brings us to tonight's subject, number one, facing extinction. And uh, the subject of tonight was first inspired by an email Franco Berardi Bifo sent me last spring. He sent me a text of his with the title Game Over. And uh, although it was not a rare thing to read one of Bifo's texts that is not very positive about the future, 
Um, uh, I thought that uh, it had another temperature this time. He was talking about Fridays for Future. He was uh, using the, the, the word extinction. So this was one inspiration. And the other inspiration, of course, was all this vast popular media discourse on extinction provoked by the Extinction Rebellion civil disobedience. Franco Berardi Bifo is a philosopher and activist, a historic figure, I would say, of the Italian Autonomia Movement. Most of us know him through his numerous and important publications on capitalism, financialization, precarity, resistance, and futurabilities. He will be speaking first, and then uh, he will be followed by his friend and comrade, Hugo Sir, who came to us to address us with a short statement on Chile, on the uprising in Chile at the moment. So for now, thank you very much. I will start from California. You know what's happening there. You know that Northern California, Southern California, everywhere is on fire. It's on fire every year. But don't worry, art and abstraction are safe. The Getty Museum is protected by a barrier of iron and steel and stone and marble and water, of course, 31 million liters of water. And also, obviously, Palo Alto and uh, Cupertino and the places where, where what? Where the global cognitive automaton is produced, created, assembled. So California is a sort of metaphor of the, of the coming age of the world. Uh, the, the living world is on fire and uh, the abstraction is safe. A sort of, of eternity of the automaton uh, that survives beyond the extinction of, uh, of the living body of the humankind. This is... Um, a metaphor, a metaphor of the coming schizophrenia of a world in which uh, chaos and the automaton live together or separate forever. But we need, at this point, we need a, a map of what is going to happen. I think uh, that we have to, to imagine a map of the interactions between different levels, different layers of the current apocalypses. And um, according to Bill McKeeble, in the current century, in the next decades, if the environmental trend is confirmed, uh, we should expect the displacement of 600 million people from the coastal areas of large part of the world. But simultaneously, Bill McKeeble says, simultaneously, the Euro-Asiatic continent is witnessing a phenomenon of heat of warming of the urban areas and of intolerable pollution of the urban area. You see what is happening these days in New Delhi. In summer, 50 degrees are becoming the new normal in large parts of this continent. First layer of the extinction process the effect is a migration of biblic proportion all over the planet. And migration, as we know, is generally producing effects at the social, at the political, and at the geopolitical and military level. War. Global civil war. This is the trend that we are witnessing everywhere in these days. Not only the Kashmir war between Pakistan and India. It 
to countries that at the end possess the nuclear weapons. Not only the Middle East war that we know very well, I think to the United Kingdom, I think to Catalonia, I think to Italy, I think to places where migration, first of all, and the political and social transformation induced by migration is leading to a process of schism of the population, 50% against 50%. This is the trend and the remainers will never find a way to agree with the leavers, like the fascisti and the anti-fascisti in Italy, like the unionist and the independentists in Catalonia. It's not political, it's tribal, it's, uh, a, it's a global civil war. But uh, the third layer, and in my opinion, the most distressing, uh, is uh, the epidemic of uh, mental disease, is the psychotic epidemics that is spreading everywhere. And when I say mental epidemic, I refer to, to the cycle of panic and depression, and I refer to the resurging phenomenon of fascism, of ethno-nationalism at the global level. It is not a comeback of what we have known in the past century. Senescence, Alzheimer, that is the new uh, form of fascism, not the fascism of the young, aggressive people who want to expand. Now it's fear, it's the sentiment of a coming invasion. This is the new form of nationalism, which is linked to a sort of cynical idea that the world is fucked up. There is no way to save the world. So I must think to my family. And what can I do to save my family? I have to buy a big car to fill the freeze with a lot of meat and I have to prepare a weapon to fight against those who may come tomorrow. So you explain why idiots, criminal idiots, are winning the election everywhere in large part of the world. And this is why we must expect a growing and increasing incapacity to face the process of extinction, because the brain is rotting. And without brain, we will not face the, the dangers. So, so what? Believe me, when, when I think these kind of things, uh, I say, as an intellectual, as a citizen, my first task is to tell the truth, to watch reality, to, to look at the eyes of the beast and to say what is unavoidable. But at the same time, I remember the words of an old wise man whose name is Keynes. He was not an economist, you know. He was a sort of strange philosopher. And he told to a friend, the unavoidable never happens because the unpredictable always prevails. That is the point. The point is that in, in what I know of history, what I have expected has never happened. I, I wonder, where did it begin? Where this crazy destruction of the world begin? Someone may think, uh, many places in the world, but I, I have an answer. It began in Santiago, Chile, in the year 1973. Because in that moment, uh, we discovered that fascism and capitalism are the same 
thing. And that neoliberalism is based on the same principle that led Adolf Hitler to power in Germany. Neoliberalism is not different from fascism because the philosophy of both those stories is natural selection. The stronger, the fittest will win. And the fittest, the strongest is destroying the world. Starting from Santiago Chile. But as you know, the unpredictable may come from that place, from Santiago de Chile. So let's listen to Hugo Sier, who is going to speak about what is happening in Santiago de Chile. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, Thanks to the organizers and special thanks to BIFO for giving us this opportunity. I'm speaking today on behalf of the Chilean collective Vitrina Distopica, and it's exactly from this place where I want to begin. I come from a dystopia, and not because Chile was particularly violent or chaotic, but exactly because of the opposite. Because this territory was supposed to be a clean and healthy democracy, we all know here that Pinochet dictatorship applied the first and perhaps one of the most developed neoliberal social transformations. What is maybe not so well known is that all the following so-called democratic governments deepened, without hesitation, all the traits of the model that keep inequalities in place. At the very beginning of the post-dictatorial era, they gave the most representative name to it, the extent of the possible. Thus, at the beginning of the 90s, they sum up everything. The only thing we can do, the entire political class that is, it is to administrate the ruin that the dictator requested to us. And this is exactly what we see in all the recent stories about environment catastrophe and the end of the world. And here, we are not denying the capitalistic devastation, but saying instead that it's part of their administration. And then, this suddenly dramatic awareness about the consequence of this nonsensical wave of production is their last attempt to make us save them with our lives. And we are not here to consent to it. Now that the Chilean October the 18th has come, we are no longer in any position to consent the spray-painting walls of Chile say many things these days. But to conclude this short intervention, I want to share two of them with you. They say, neoliberalism started in Chile, and in Chile it will die, and will stay in the street until life is worth living. Reading these two messages together, we can see it calls out to an affect we can all experience, that life under neoliberalism is not worth living. And at the same time, it means that now, finally now, it's possible to glimpse a life worth living. The care, the affect, the pleasure, the joy, i.e., a life worth of living, is in the background and on the surface of all our well-justified rage. This is what allows us to glimpse an after. We are witnessing a radical attempt of openness to the possibility of another wave of living, as our only chance to shut up the apocalyptic trumpets. It is not the world what is going to end. Instead, it's their world which must cease to exist. Finally, if Chile may show something to all of us, to every little spot besieged by the neoliberal machinery, is that it's up to us now to destitute the world that they administered as a ruin. Thank you very much. Yes, I hope they make it in Chile with the end of neoliberalism. And uh, we make a share pressure globally. I want to introduce our next speaker, Marcella Vecchioni. She's the head of the Graduate Studies Program on Sustainable Development at the Humid Tropics, hosted in the Center of Advanced Amazonian Studies at the Federal University of Pará in the Eastern Amazon in Brazil. She has been researching and teaching on Amazonian political ecology, indigenous people, as well as global development in the last 12 years. 
She's also a member and contributor in a numerous Brazilian land and environmental movements. Uh, thank you for the invitation for this very interesting event. The colleagues, the peers that you are debating here, such an important um, matter. And uh, I think it was so strong to listen to Hugo uh, reading the statement. And I think the, the way he ended um, his statement is actually a good beginning for me to start. So when he says um, about the movement that is happening in Chile right now, the hip upheaval that's happening in Chile right now, uh, let's try to get out and let's make a way of getting out of the ruins that you projected and created for us, I think that's something that indigenous peoples, traditional communities, riverine communities in Brazil, smallhold farmers, people living at the peripheries, black communities, they are facing it every day for so long right now. They are facing the threats, they are facing the limits of being living at the edge of a system that produced and created the ruins for them, that created this situation of permanent extinction for them. So extinction for these people is not a matter of the future, is an imminent matter for the right here and the right now. So the future is the present. Because of this future that is present for them, it's so important to listen to what they're telling us, their stories, their challenges, because they have so much to teach to us in terms of learning how to live in these ruins and how to possibly overcome these ruins, right? And to build a different future, if it's possible to build a different future. So um, the, the matter of futurability for them, which maybe we can define as the ability to define the future, is a permanent everyday challenge that uh, they shape and craft according to their livelihoods so that they can keep on living in the present. And the fact that they keep on living in the present, even though the situation is so terrible, is an indication of a possibility of a different future at the edges of this global capitalism, contemporarily, that you see, but also, if you look at the ancient history of this global capitalism, which is colonization, right? This 500 years of permanent and continuous extinction that these peoples have been facing, right? So the futurability for them is also an attempt to build their permanent survival in face first of colonization. Why did the people... Why did they continue to leave? Um, sometimes um, there are some theorists in Brazil, uh, especially from anthropology, that would say that there is a, an ethnogenesis happening with some indigenous groups, right? Like some indigenous peoples that are starting to recognize themselves as indigenous. And uh, in the specialized literature, it's called uh, ethnogenesis. But in fact, it's not really a matter of genesis, it's a matter of continuation. These people, especially because of colonization and how colonization unfolded in the country, if you are talking about Brazil, but you can see this in Latin America as a region as well. And as we see right now with global capitalism, many times they had to hide their identity they had to hide their ways of living so that they could uh, survive. They had to mingle to a certain extent. So why do they continue to live? What is the reason for their permanence? I think this is the good question to make in times right now. So I think that's one point. Another point that's also related to that, if we think in terms of time, 
to think about extinction, right? So whose extinction we are talking about, right? This extinction is on the floor for such a long time for so many people. Not just indigenous peoples, but other people as well. For example, if we look at uh, in the right beginning of the 20th century or in the mid-20th century, in Latin America, for example, if you look at the movements for independence, they are trying to put uh, their ideas, their ways of living to the fore. In this sense, we have to be very careful not to be too colonial and to exercise our coloniality of time and our urgency to fight for life or against climate change, for example, and uh, do not realize that the struggles have been uh, at the fore for such a long time. Like, if you are talking about the end of the world, we also have to think about the words that had already ended. And for these people, the world has already ended for a long time. Uh, it started 500 years ago, but it keeps on happening a long time through different manners, right? So a very important thing about such end of the world uh, that have been enhanced by capitalism a long time because... Um, Capitalism is so related to create value and to create value related to specific things that you are going to commercialize. Because of that, you have to appropriate nature. And this is extractivism, right? But for doing that, for conceptualizing that, there is a point of departure that sometimes we take so much for granted and that's so important to think in terms of extinction and also in terms of possibilities of life. That is the very separation between nature and society, nature and culture, as if there is a triad of separated things, as if they do not operate together. And uh, uh, these people, they have so much to teach us when they are going to say this very simple thing that we cannot separate nature from culture and from society because this separation is the point zero to appropriation and to the kind of system that we developed from that and that created so much destructions, the ruins, so to speak. And... In doing and by doing this separation between nature and culture, also the conception of humanity that we have is a humanity that is very individualized. Although you're talking about a group, the humanity that derives from the human that's thinking about this humanity is an individual one. And also because of it, this individual is separated from nature. So when we talk about the end of the world related to climate change, for example, we tend to separate ourselves from this very nature that is being destroyed, right? As if uh, we recognize that our actions, they have consequences on the destruction of this nature, but we think ourselves as if we are outside of this nature, and we are not. We are not. There is no such separation. And this is also a very important thing, uh, in my opinion, uh, to think about the possibilities of life at the ruins of um, capitalism. So I think it's also a mistake to make such a separation in terms of the logic of the virtual, of the financial, and the logic of the production that unfolds on the very land, on the very floor. And of course, it is also related to the separation between nature and society that we tend to be reproducing and producing since the 19th century when the idea of progress and civilization was so connected to the very ways that we are capable of thinking of future. So perhaps we should go backwards and try to think in another way 
without this duality and separations so that we can um, foresee and to be futurable in terms of producing different futures that are not based on such divisions that are just good to produce hierarchies and to, and to legitimate the ruins that are being produced and reproduced on territories, on land, and on our very lives. I'm happy to introduce our last speaker, Antonia Mayaka. She is the principal investigator on the research project Incomputable at the Institute for Contemporary Art in Graz University of Technology. Um, she teaches art theory at the Dutch Art Institute in Arnhem. She is also one of the research curators in the long-term project Kanonfragen at the Haus der Kulturen der Welt. She will talk exactly about what we were also mentioning about um, the relation to Techna in terms of this discourse of extinction. I tried to give a title to what I want to say and I came up with a provisional title and it would be The Oikos of the Earth or The Next Revolution Will Be Planetary and Will Be Led by Women and Children. So as we heard from uh, Marcella and from Hugo, People in the South have obviously been facing imminent extinction for centuries, and uh, ecological plunder has been occurring by different forms of expropriation, exploitation in colonies and uh, neo-colonies in the global South. So, as I said, it is really crucial to maybe not so much to ask the question of uh, what and why of the extinction, but rather of when and where. In fact, it seems that the extinction is becoming a universal problem only now that it seems to have reached the uh, White West, as the, as the title of a conference series by my colleague Ana Teixeira Pinto is called. Only now it seems to be a problem. And then the answer to this threat is found in different kinds of techno-solutionism, in green capitalism, or the worse, the discourse of population control. When they say population, we know which population they mean, don't we? So invoking population control is, in my view, a, fundamental, a fundamentally a manifest form of eco-fascist Malthusianism. It is not so much about extinction as such, but about when of it and where of it. And I think here the work of Denise Ferrer de Silva always helps me to... Um, to remember that the inscription of the category of time works within the onto-epistemological register of Western Enlightenment. So once born into this world, the subject that is, doesn't belong to it somehow immediately is caught in a constitutive relationship which points to the space of the absolute elsewhere, a space of man and the human Within this position, the engagement with humanity starts from the position of uh, the word that Denise uses is affectability and the, the space of relationality, the space of contingency, and for me maybe most importantly, the space of proximity and immediacy. So born into the world you cannot claim as one's own, you are caught in this eternal present, oscillating, vibrating. In the other words, time, if you're outside of this onto-epistemological category of time, as it has been inscribed within the subjecthood of Western Enlightenment, is then the permanent here. So for the subject that is outside of it, there is no grand horizon of history, right? There is no universal history with its grand horizon on which something miraculously happens, right? Universal as it has been produced, of course, by the colonial encounter. But the problem is that the universal is uh, what, as Gayatri Spivak has put it, something we cannot not want, even when it excludes us. How do we re relate to this extinction that we are talking about here, and from which perspective? You know? And now to something that uh, Bifo said, 
I think it's important to keep in mind this genealogical equation between uh, fascism and neoliberalism. This is a crucial thing to keep in mind, which is something that Hugo also pointed uh, towards. And um, what I'm trying to think through here is also how we can employ a different form of what we've called the map. How can we produce this map indeed? So how to do the, the cognitive mapping in a proper Jamesonian, you know, Marxist uh, aesthetic way, but outside of all this paradigm that they're trying to tell us how to narrate totality today. And I came up with a kind of a three versions of this totality and therefore also the programs that should somehow stem from it. One would be the kind of the cybernetic one that says that we are always necessarily caught in the fold of the cybernetic rationality, right? That, that we are basically drowning in data, that there is nothing outside the techno-positivist um, data behaviorism, basically. The second one would be the kind of the Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis. The, the problem with that one is also the fact that the Earth is perceived as a kind of a self-regulating, self-sustainable totality, right? As Lynn Margulis uh, warns us, no, Earth is not a self-regulating totality and it should not be personified. And this is a very important point. The third one which, with which I have most problems with is the one that tells us that basically uh, things can simply be repurposed. That we have the totality, the capitalist totality that we have, but what needs to be done, we need to use its affordances, we need to use its leverage points, and we to, need to repurpose it to accelerate technological development, but this time for the purpose of betterment of um, the left project, so to say. This is a very worrying one for me because it remains on the scale of this basically eschatological perception of linear time that says that there is something that is capitalism and then there will be something that is post-capitalism, right? How are we supposed to reach that phase of post-capitalism if, as the so-called left accelerationists uh, tell us, uh, we have to repurpose technologies that are there without ever, ever questioning the institution of a private property or a money-based economy? The question is then, how can we think mapping outside of all of these paradigms that, as Marcella pointed out, basically reside in this basic separability and this separation, as you find, is the history of a white male philosophy of technicity. They all keep the grand outside somehow, the outside of technam. And of course, this appears everywhere from uh, uh, Marx to uh, Freud and Lacan, not to mention Heidegger and so on. This is what we need to deal with. What kind of reason this kind of reasoning of techne produces? What kind of, uh, what kind of subject is the subject of this separation from the techne, from the originary technicity, no? What is its logos, in other words? So there's no human there. In the Anthropocene, there is Anthropos, and we know who this Anthropos is. This Anthropos is the Anthropos of that reason, of that logic. So I'm rereading Arend. I'm rereading Human Condition. As you know, Arend, the, uh, the anti-feminist, anti-communist, uh, liberal uh, philosopher, who in her Human Condition, the book that was published in '57 returns to the ancient polis, looks at the Aristotle, draws from the Aristotle that separation between the oikos and the polis, where the polis is the space where one exercises, if you're free, if you're a free man, then you exercise reason in the polis, whereas in the oikos, oikos is inhabited by we know whom, by the enslaved, by women, by children. So I want to think the planet, new planetary political subject, if you want, from the perspective of the oikos, 
from the perspective of the human as praxis, as Sylvia Winter puts it. And this means working against the police, so to say, and working against the nomos. It is not about autonomy, autonomia. It is about antinomos. It is about a radical disrespect of the nomos and the follow technological reason that uh, leads it. This is something that I think we really, really need to keep coming back to. Where is this separation happening? When did it happen? And what is the, the, the history of Western reason, uh, the, the, the role of it in it? So to, to conclude, I would like to think the fire without the Prometheus. Can we do that? Can we think fire without the Prometheus? And intelligence without this violence, violent reductionism of the anthropos. Because that violent reductionism of the anthropos brought us to the bones of the Pleistocene animals appearing in the melting permafrost. We have to say that this intelligence of that reason, of that logos, of the polis and of the nomos, is not the place from which we can build a planetary political subject. Rather, I would join uh, Fred Moten to say that intelligence, uh, fuck that intelligence. Anyway, so that's what I prepared for you tonight to share. Thanks. Thank you for staying with us. I think what we um, discussed today is that for sure we cannot talk about the extinction. We have to talk about a lot of extinctions, about the where and the when of extinction. Um, we have to find a new relation to nature and to techne in a way. And um, this would also yeah, be a key, I think, to how we will deal with the problems coming. We have to maybe learn from indigenous thinkers surviving and to understand that extinction is not the future, but it is the presence. And that despite of this present, we can live along. This was the end of the discussion. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much to my speakers. Have a wonderful evening. You have just listened to the first edition of the podcast Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence, focusing on the subject of facing extinction. The next event will take place on the 21st of January. Thank you for listening. Burning Futures.